If you would uh, the Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter number 4. We've been uh, going verse by verse through 1 Corinthians. And uh, I like this approach because it treats the Bible as inspired and all of it as important. And uh, sometimes it causes us to uh, wade into issues and concerns that we might like to leave alone. But uh, it helps us address the scripture without prejudice and cherry picking and uh, make us uncomfortable sometimes, which is healthy, right? Sometimes we need to be made uncomfortable by truth that may uh, shift our way of viewing things to God's perspective. And uh, that's really important. But in 1 Corinthians chapter number 4, we'll resume there in verse number 6, and we're going to go through the end of this chapter. And there the scripture says, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos for your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up. Look at that uh, phrase. Some translations may say arrogant. But it's repeated three times in the section of Scripture that we'll see. And you can see that this is kind of the uh, emphasis. He says, so that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you glory or boast as if you had not received it? You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us. And indeed, I could wish you did reign, that we also might reign with you. For I think that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. Even to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst, and we are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we endure it. Being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the off-scouring of all things until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. For this reason, I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach everywhere, in every church. Now some are puffed up as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord wills, and I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power. For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod, or in love, and a spirit of gentleness? Father, thank you. For the Bible, we pray that you'll speak to us from it today and help us to understand your purpose in giving us this truth. And we pray that you'll help us to be obedient to what you'll show us. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I I found this to be a really difficult passage this week as I read through it and studied to try to get the uh, idea of how this is, you know, what does it mean and say to us and I was thinking about, you know, the probably the overall idea is that we're to look to our 
to spiritual models and examples of people who are living the faith out and serving us in leadership. And I think that's the idea. And I thought about how in our culture, sometimes now people are called influencers. That's kind of a new thing that's happened since the inception of the internet, right? That you could be an influencer. And uh, it's interesting sometimes how people become influencers. Like one site said, um, meet the top 25 influencers crushing it on Instagram. <laughs> I thought that's so funny to me. Crushing it on Instagram, that's how you get to be an influencer. You post pictures with captions and monetize it. That's the important part. But, you know, that's what an influencer is in, in our culture. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce has a site that lists the top five influencers in every industry. So our government acknowledges the place of influencers and uh, so to give a definition to it, someone uh, described it this way. An influencer is someone who in their niche or your niche or industry has sway over your target audience. This person has a particular knowledge specific to, you know, some interest. And they have learned, again, how to monetize it, how to turn that interest into influence and money uh, with people. And so, you know, before the internet was a thing, there was a concept that we see in Scripture about the importance of influence and example. So you, the fact that there were people who led and whose life might be worthy of imitating. And that's what Paul says in this passage, doesn't he? When we read through it, he says, imitate me. That's a very bold thing to say. Imitate me as I'm uh, following Christ. And I'm establishing an example to you. And so one thing I want to be sure to say is that when we look at the example of Paul in the Bible, that he is not the hero of the story or the narrative. God is the hero, right? God's always the hero of Scripture. Paul, in as much as he points us to God, is an influencer, someone who's given us an example to follow, but when we read the Bible, we should always be clear that the the people in the stories, the narratives, are not the hero. God is the hero. Their job is to point us to our great God. And so, what? And really, when you read the Bible, what you notice is that the people that we would uh, pose as heroes have feet of clay, right? All of them are human. All of them have weaknesses. All of them have parts of their own personality that we, when we look at, at them, we'd say, they're just like us, they're blemished, and they come short. And so we couldn't really turn these people into heroes anyway because they're just human beings like us whom, uh, who God chose to use. So God is the hero, and the whole point of the Bible is to use the, the illustrations and examples of people's lives to draw us to God and help us experience the Lord. So when we think about leadership, it is vital. It's vital that our leaders are people who hopefully are following Christ. And when we look at their lives, we know that these are people who take God seriously. You know, one of the qualifications that the Bible gives for leadership is that it says the person should be grave. And we think, well, what does that mean? Sour and long-faced and unhappy? But really what it means is it's an idea about reverence. And what it means is seriousness, 
A leader should be serious. And in this respect, what it means is that there is nothing in that person's life that is for them that is more serious than God and the worship of God and knowing God. So, you know, these people, when we look at someone like Paul, or he's, he talks about Apollos or Timothy, and several people are mentioned who were spiritual leaders, but their responsibility was to help us to see God and experience God, hopefully through their own life and example. And so what I wanted us to do in this message today is to look at some traits of good spiritual models. If someone is going to model for us, if they're going to be an influencer in spiritual things, what would it be about their life that would model for us something that would point us to God? So the first truth or uh, the trait we see in a person who would be modeling God for us is that they're grounded. That's what I notice when Paul talks about himself is he's grounded. He understands who he is. And that's an important thing is to know who we are and to know ourselves. And so in a leader like Paul, is he is, there's really a contrast that we're going to see that he keeps holding up the difference between the approach to life that he is trying to follow and some of the issues and problems that he sees in the congregation and the lives of these people. And we said about the church in Corinth that it is a prob- it's a troubled church. Why? But, uh, because there are people there, right? There are human beings here who are trying to work out their stuff with God. And they, these people have all come to know Jesus in a real and personal way. And their life is in the process of being transformed. They've been taken out of darkness and put into light. But now in the process of, uh, you know, cr- trying to understand what it means to walk with God, they've got all this baggage from their pre-Christian life. And they're trying to figure out, how does my character become conformed now to the life that God would want? So the beautiful thing is God really took the experience of a local church, one church in history, this congregation of these people in Macedonia and Corinth, and he gave it to us with all of their challenges and problems so that we could see in congregational life and community, we're going to have to work through human problems too. You know, we're going to have to face moral issues and challenges and relationships. We're going to have to deal with the issues of unforgiveness. And so when we look at this congregation, it just shows us that people are people are people. It doesn't matter where you go. You know, I've had the privilege, as I've said, to go to different countries, Brazil, Peru, Turkey, India. You know what I found there once we could get past language barriers, is that people are people are people, no matter where you go in the world. You may see some cultural distinctions, but the essence of what a human being is is always the same wherever you go. Have the same kind of problems, same kind of issues and families. and So God gives us this snapshot that he holds up for us until Christ returns to say, this is how you work through what it means to be in a congregation and in relationships with other people. So when Paul is dealing with some of the challenges of these recently regenerate people, these people who did not know God's purpose but found it in Jesus, whose sins had been separating them from God but now had been brought near through the blood of Christ and experienced His power in the resurrection, 
they're still trying to work through their messiness with each other. And so he, he takes on the challenges that he sees, and some of this is personal, you can see, in the, in the story between this leader and these people. And he, he talks about how that they had, he had applied these things, what things, that they were uh, hero-worshipping. They had taken Apollos and created around him a, a little clique, a group, that put, put the emphasis on Apollos, an orator, a speaker, a leader. And the same thing with Paul. Some people said, well, we gravitate to him. But, but what we've seen up to now is that what God did not want in their body was people's, this sectarian thing. We keep having that idea, divisiveness. That's not what God wanted. What he wanted was community. People who were moving in the same direction together. And so... It keeps getting hammered out here. But when Paul talks about, the, he says, we applied these things to us, what he's really saying is that they knew themselves. Paul knew, hey, I'm not worthy of hero worship. I'm a human being. I'm a man. I'm not God. I'm a, and you remember one time Paul uh, performs a miracle and people tried to worship him as God. He said, we're not God. And it's interesting, within like a few verses in the Bible, they were stoning him and dragging him out of town. So he went from the danger of being worshipped to being, you know, almost martyred. They tried to stone him. That, that says something about how fickle people can be. But, but Paul himself in this story says, hey, I'm not a rock star. I'm not a hero. Paul, Apollos isn't a hero. He's just somebody that's trying to get you connected to God. He's trying to speak God's truth into your life. And so he knew himself. You remember how John the Baptist in Scripture at first is baptizing and everybody's coming to John and John knows his role. He says, I'm, I'm not the Messiah. That's what he kept telling them. He says, but there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's talking about Jesus. But he says, I'm not, that's not who I am. I'm a forerunner. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, he says. So I'm not, I'm not the one to be worshipped. And at one point, some people come to John the Baptist and they say to him, Hey, do you know that Jesus is baptizing more people than you now? And you remember what John said about that? He said, He must increase and I must decrease. That's how, how he understood himself is like, whatever following has come to me, following has come to me at this point, it's not about me, it is just so that I can get people to Jesus. And that's what leadership is. It's really what the influence of anybody's life is supposed to be about, is us helping people get to where hope is in Jesus. And so John understood that there was a big difference between being puffed up and thinking that we, you know, we have it together versus knowing, no, none of us have it together. Our job is to get to the on, people to the only one who ever had it together, the only one who never sinned, and the only one who's the hope of salvation. And uh, so he was helping people encounter Jesus, and that's what spiritual leadership is supposed to do. So anyone uh, who uh, has a concept of spiritual leadership that thinks, well, I'm building a brand, you know, that we get all that kind of nonsense in our day. You know, I'm making a platform, I'm building a brand. No, that's not what it's about. It's about the glory of God. God being glorified as people experience Jesus. 
And so the ideal, you know, when we think about what it, we're not in competition in the church with other churches, not inside, not with anybody else around us. Really what we, the best possible thing that can happen among the people of God in the world is collaboration, right? We're like serving the Lord and trying to get people to hope. So it's, there's not, and that's what you saw in the passages that they put the emphasis on competition. And Paul is trying to say, that's not what it's about. It's just about us trying to get people to a place that they can experience life and hope and forgiveness. And so they knew who they were. They, you know, when they, the sense in being grounded is that they knew who they were. But they also knew the Bible. The script, scripture here says, it's an interesting phrase because he said when he talks about what they shouldn't do, he says, I don't want you to go beyond what is written, what's written. And it's just a call back to the reality that the Bible frames our understanding of God in every way. So, so if you're attempting to worship people like some, you know, like make a big deal out of a human being, then you've, he says you've, you're going beyond Scripture. That's not what Scripture says. You know, scripture says, he's already told us, if you're, you may remember as we, you go through 1 Corinthians, that moreover, we saw last week, it's required among uh, stewards or, that one be found faithful. And he, he says, all we are is servants. That's what we are. And any definition or idea about spiritual leadership that goes beyond that, he says, is outside of Scripture. So some idea that, you know, you'll find a pastor, a spiritual leader, a pope, or whoever that is, you know, perfect is ludicrous. All we have to do is, like, spend a day with each other to know that they're... Just drive down the road with somebody in a car, right? I mean, drive with me. You'll find out I am not perfect. Impatience characterizes people. We're, you know, there's just not anybody out there that we should put all of our hope in except for Jesus. Which, you know, the point still of this passage is to help us understand that we need spiritual leaders. We just need to understand them properly. And so that's what he shows us is that uh, if you're trying to put too much hope in uh, someone, whether it's Paul, who, man, most energetic missionary, uh, probably the brightest theologian that ever lived, but he still knew who he was. And he knew that if people tried to you know, uh, put too much focus on him. They were outside of Scripture. And also, when a person's grounded in the way that we see that Paul was, they know their source. Look at what the uh, Scripture says there again. He says, well, for what makes you differ from, from another? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you, in fact, you received it, why do you boast about it as if, it, if you didn't? And, and what he's trying to say is gifts that come to people. Anything that makes us remarkable is a gift from God. Your height. You know, it's like we had somebody help us paint recently, Jim's son. Tony, six foot seven. He was very helpful to have in here, you know, to be trying to paint with a, you know, an extension and all that. But it would be silly, wouldn't it, to brag about your height? You know, some people are like five feet tall. Anything like that, that it's a gift, whether it's voice, talent, intellect, all of it is a gift from God. 
So the, he, he says here, why are you behaving as if something remarkable about you is because of you? Because nothing remarkable about you is because of you. It's a gift. That's what he's trying to help us see. So it's almost like uh, the, uh, the sun, the relationship of the sun to the moon. You know, the moon doesn't have any light of its own. If it didn't have the sun, it would just be a dark rock somewhere. But it, the sun shines on the moon and gives it its light. <laughs> it gives it its light. And, and so we're like that. The thing that gives us any glory or the thing that makes us remarkable is because of God who shines his light into, into our lives. So a person that's going to be used by God has to be grounded, understand who they are. John fifteen five again, the Bible says that Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me bears much fruit, but apart from me, he said, you can do nothing. I'm the vine, Jesus says. You're the branches. And if we dwell in him, if we abide in him, we'll be fruitful. He says, but apart from me, you can do nothing. So we keep that in mind. We remember that he's created us, and that's our relationship that we, we have to him. But secondly, when we think about people that could model spiritual leadership to us, we see that they uh, do sacrifice for the sake of the kingdom. They lived sacrificially. And you see that in the way that Paul describes his own ministry and life. And he compares himself with the, uh, some of the people there. And we know when you read First and Second Corinthians that Paul had critics people that were judge, judging and critical of his, his ministry. But he, he says we have learned to have a, a mindset that's sacrificial. And he, he looks at the difference between the way that they had thought. And when you read this, there is a um, blending of sarcasm and irony and truth. So he, some of the things that he says, he's saying sarcastically, but they also are truth. So when he says to them, you're already rich. That was true, right? Because the riches of Christ had been made theirs. They were rich. That was true. But he's also being sarcastic because of the way that they were perceiving uh, themselves. He, he says, you've been enriched. You're already full. You're, you're kings, he says. And he's being sarcastic, but it's also true that they were kings. Because we've seen, you know, recently, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it says, you are what? A royal priesthood. They were royalty because they belonged to God and were part of his family, but he's also being sarcastic because of the, the way that they were behaving, because of the arrogance with which they carried themselves. So... When the Bible is describing these folks, we see that they had somehow lost their sense of gratitude. When you lose your sense of gratitude, you, what, how are you going to behave? You'll be entitled. You'll think, the world owes me stuff. You know, I, this is mine by right. They had forgotten it wasn't theirs by right. It was theirs graciously as a gift from God. What put them in the family of God was... The fact that he's good to all of us all the time. And Jesus Christ came to us and gave himself, and, but we didn't have a right to that. I've said this before, my former pastor used to say, if we got what we deserve, we'd go to hell. Because the Bible says that sin separates us from God and that the wages of sin is death. 
And that kind of death that the Bible is talking about is alienation from God. And, and so what, when, what we get in Jesus is an incredible gift that ought to every day make us grateful human beings and worshiping people. So that's what, you know, is missing somehow in, in, in their, you know, experiences, Christ followers. They had become self-focused and convinced of their rights. I saw an article this week, really interesting, uh, that was talking about VR church in the metaverse. <laughs> Have, is anybody aware of the metaverse? I really wasn't. I didn't know there was a metaverse, but now I know there is one. It is uh, the virtual world that you, uh, you put on these um, virtual reality you know, headsets, and now there's a way to go to church that way. It's like you put it on and you like wander around among virtual people in a virtual building somewhere and you can be virtually baptized. And it's a thing. I mean, you can look it up. The metaverse. And there are some people, it was an interesting article, for whom virtual church is helpful because of the debilitating situation in their life. But here's the caution. It's not the viable thing for everybody because anybody that can connect to community needs to connect to community. Because there's a cost there and there are issues at stake that we'll never be able to affect fully virtually from a distance. So, you know, when we're able to, we the Bible says the church is really the body of Christ, the uh, collective, the, uh, the called together people, called out, called together. You know, that's who we are. And it's difficult. And I think part of what has, you know, happens in a situation like at Corinth is that they've, you know, they haven't maybe fully counted the cost of what it means to have relationships with other people that are part of the family of God. And it's challenging. It's not always easy. I really, uh, I bought a case of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, long ago and gave it to a lot of people because I love the book so much and especially how... He talks about the church, the body of Christ. And listen to what he said. He said, it may seem easy to be holy when there's no one else around to frustrate your preferences, but that is a false, untested holiness. Isolation breeds deceitfulness. It's easy to fool ourselves into thinking we're mature if there's no one around to challenge us, he says. But real maturity shows up in relationships. You know... uh, we need people I like how one writer says we need people and we need we need each other and we needle each other he says it's like it's difficult to have relationships with people but God's purpose in community is to knit us together and to put us on mission with each other and so we, we persevere in that there's no good substitute for relationships with other human beings and there's not an easy button to push for community either sometimes we wish man I I wish this was easier well sorry (laughs) it's not because this is another human being that you're connected to and it's never going to be simple it's always going to be complicated because people are complicated things because they're high orders of beings made by God so it's always going to be somewhat difficult to to work things out with each other. So they, they, they practice, we think about good modeling. There's people that practice sacri- 
sacrificial self-denial. Look at how Paul describes his life here. You know, how, what he says about himself. He describes himself as being homeless. He's homeless, he says. And he talks about the difficulty that they experienced. He uh, says I, we're con- the apostles are condemned to death. Well, that wasn't just a figure of speech for him. Eventually, he actually was condemned to death. He wasn't just using some, you know, extreme illustration. That's actually what happened in his experiences that he was condemned and died. And there are still places in the world where violent persecutions against Christian, Christians is a reality. I remember hearing a missionary from Nepal one time talk about the great risk to your life and livelihood and family that you incurred by saying yes to the gospel in Nepal. It was very likely that you, you know, would experience violent persecution. And I think about here where we're often deterred by bad weather. Or good weather. You know, either one. Bad weather, good weather. Hurt feelings. But they, you know, they practice self-denial as in a sacrificial way of life. And they had a sacrificial witness in this, these verses that you can see. He says, we're, often what happens when we stand and are consistent in our witness to Christ is we're berated and we're treated poorly and people say bad things about us. And you notice how he responds. He says, we answer gently. That's what they did. The culture around them was not friendly to their faith. What did they do? They answered gently. They didn't, when we're defamed, he says, we're, we just take care to maintain the relationships and to keep, the, keep relationships at the forefront because we know that these people, even though they hate us, are people for whom Jesus died. That's why he, he remembered not to treat his enemies like enemies. And I think we forget that in our society these days. We think, uh, there was a, recently a politician said, turning the other cheek has gotten us nothing. I won't mention his name, you can look it up. Turning the other cheek has gotten us nothing. He took the words of Jesus and he says, this approach to life doesn't work. So, Sometimes what we've grown to think is the gospel itself isn't subversive enough to change society. We need something else. We need the right person elected to office. Jesus plus something is what we need. But the Apostle Paul here says, you know, the reason that we're talking about this is he's contrasting. He says, you're strong, we're weak. Weakness doesn't work. We've got to have something else, some powerful thing to come to bat for us, to save us. And and that's not what you see in authentic Christianity. There's a trust that the gospel is enough. The only thing that made my life better was Jesus. The only thing that gave me hope and gave meaning and turned things around for me was Jesus Christ. So, you know, when we try to go out into the world, we need to remember that Our witness is in what we believe about Jesus. Is Jesus powerful and enough? Well, I believe he absolutely is. When Paul 
taught about himself, his deprivation was his curriculum by day. So the things I've suffered, these are, that's my resume. When he was defamed, he answered gently, and he modeled how to be a witness to Jesus in a hostile culture like our culture, where we experience hostility. I think it's still the way. Then also, good spiritual models care deeply. That's what you can see through the uh, remainder of this passage. They care enough to correct us at times. There's conflict. We'll talk about that. But there's conflict happening here. We think church is a place conflict should never happen. But I'm sorry, conflict happens all the time. Are you married? If you're married, you know for sure conflict happens all the time. You disagree about things, that's what conflict is. You see one thing one way, they see something the other way. So conflict happens all the time. And what we need sometimes, like in congregational life, is people who will care about us enough to confront us when we're wrong, to correct us and help us to see things the right way. And if we have any hope at all of being a mature human being, we need a teachable attitude. We need to be approachable, to be able to say, yeah, I was wrong. That's, to me, like one of the... The greatest evidence is that God may be able to do something with us is the capacity sometimes to say, I am wrong. I got it wrong. If we can't be corrected, the assumption is that we're always right. Do you think you're always right? Again, are you married? If you're married, you know that you're not always right. I'm not, trying, I'm not making eye contact with my wife right now. But... uh we know that. We're not always right. And if, and if I can, the assumption is if I can't be corrected, I can always see my blind spots. Isn't that a ludicrous way to think? If you could see your blind spots, they wouldn't be blind spots. We need people around us to say, look, this is going on. You may not be aware of it. And then we need the humility to be able to say, that's right. And then, you know, God has something there He can work with. So the, they, they care deeply, they care enough sometimes to correct us. They care enough to share the gospel and live out the gospel with, uh, among us. It's interesting when Paul talks about Timothy, he says, I'm going to send Timothy to you, and the reason that I'm sending Timothy is to remind you. But he says he's, Timothy was his son, in the, in the ministry, that means he had shared Jesus with Timothy. Timothy came to faith in Jesus because of Paul's testimony and witness. And that's how it works. You know, God will use our voice and our life and our uh, testimony, but we've got to open up our mouths and speak truth and, and the gospel truth. And Paul had shared the gospel with Timothy. And I thought about that. If someone, he says, imitate me. If someone imitated you or me, that's, which is the essence of biblical discipleship, is teaching people to imitate. To, hey, I've experienced this. I want you to experience this. I want to help you learn how to experience it. Second Timothy 2, 2 says, the things that you uh, saw in me in the presence of many witnesses, these commit to faithful men that they in turn might teach others. So the idea in discipleship is that uh, somebody who's learned something imparts it to somebody else. That person takes what they learned, they impart it to somebody else. Uh, 
You know, so we're involved in uh, discipling as we impart truth. But if if uh, somebody imitated you or me, how likely would it be that they ended up becoming a healthy, mature follower of Jesus? See, that's the challenge in what he says to them. He says, you imit- if you imitated me, it would be likely that you might become a mature follower of Jesus. Not a perfect one, but uh, a, a growing one. So he cares about them, but he's not coercive either. Not in the sense of strong-arming them, although the language seems really strong, doesn't it? When he says, what do you want? Should I come to you with a rod? That sounds threatening, right? But I think we have to read closely into what he's saying. Because I don't think he's saying, I want to come to you with a rod and beat you. You know, that's not how people internalize truth. But he, he says, you need to be refreshed. There's a word in here when he talks about, look at verse 17. It says, for this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who's my beloved and faithful son and Lord who will remind you. A lot of times English words are influenced by Greek words. That Greek word is almost literally amnesia. He says, I'm, go- I'm trying to correct the fact that you've suffered some form of amnesia here. You've forgotten the principles of faith and faithfulness. And so I'm going to send Timothy to you, and he's going to help you with that. And, and conflict, as we say, happens. And he's in conflict with these people because there are two sets of principles. And he says, your principles are not God-honoring. And so there's conflict because he wants them to honor the Lord. And he wants them to uh, live the life that God created them to, to uh, live. And so purposeful things, when they happen among people who are, uh, want to please the Lord, sometimes are going to create a sort of a intensity that, that happens in relationship. They will stretch us, right, make us uncomfortable at times. And our character will always be tested in community, like we uh, saw before. So the test is whether or not I can lower my guard when it is appropriate and humble myself and say, right, I was wrong here. I didn't see that. I appreciate you bringing it to my attention. I was wrong. Or to be able to apologize. You know, it's one of the great uh, tools that God puts in our, at our disposal in community is the ability to go, I was wrong. Would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? I was wrong. And, and then community is strengthened and trust is built. And, you know, we just have to own our mistakes sometimes and release our resentments. It, it, it just happens that when people are together, I was thinking about this earlier, we judge and we criticize each other. We see each other's flaws so easily. Remember what Jesus said about that? He said, um, you're trying to pull the plank out of your brother's eye, or the speck out of his eye, but you might want to get the plank out of your eye first. Then you'll see clearly to help your brother. So being able to release our resentments and forgive and rebuild relationships and understand ourselves accurately, this is uh, where God's presence is obvious because God is all about reconciliation. What was the gospel about? When uh, the disciples proclaimed it, it was about reconciliation. Sinful people being brought back to God. Sinful people being put right with holy God. Reconciliation. Peace 
between us and God. But it doesn't end there. You know, God's purpose is also that we be reconciled. He says, I've committed to you this ministry of reconciliation. So we have a ministry that's about bringing peace into relationships. And I love how Paul really does um, rely on friendship to lead in this passage because he says, I could come to you as an authoritarian. I could come and lay down the law, but this I think is what he's really saying. What I'd prefer is for our friendship to, to be the rule here. I'd prefer it to be, you know, so that we're able to communicate like people that care about each other and, and move forward in that way. Uh, the message paraphrases this passage by saying, so how should I prepare to come to you as a severe dis- disciplinarian or who makes you toe the mark or as a good friend and counselor who wants to share heart to heart with you? He says, you decide. So I think that the impression you go away with is there is a place for authority in spiritual community. Spiritual community, the church, there is a place where we identify, hopefully, godly leaders, and we honor and we trust and listen to them as they try to reflect Christ to us. But I think what he's saying here is mutual respect, honor among individuals is the path forward. It's the way that we work things out. So spiritual leadership is important because it shapes spiritual community. It's vital because it helps give us an accurate picture of God to the world. It's crucial because God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, the Bible says, as in all the churches of the Lord, or all the churches of the saints, actually, is what it says. So good examples of godliness are significant because they shape our homes. They accurately represent the heart of God uh, as a way of making space for the subversive power of the gospel. In other words, it clears away the uh, clutter and the things that interfere with the continuing idea that why do we exist here? Why did God put a church here? He put a church here so that there was the opportunity for people to hear the life-transforming reality of the good news of Jesus Christ. That God loved us too much to leave us as we were. He came here and he died for us and he was raised from the dead. And in his resurrection, we find hope and God pointing us to a future that's filled with hope. And so we, we want to have leadership and maturity because it makes the way for the gospel to be at the center and Jesus to be at the center and God to be uh, worshipped in our midst. He is the source, the passage shows us, of all the good things that we experience. And that should, if we know that God is the source, it ought to increase, increase gratitude. And whenever gratitude is present, all kinds of good things will be there with it. Whenever grumbling is uh, present and bitterness and uh, just the opposite will be true, confusion and, and bad things. So we need more gratitude, right? We need to understand how we got where we are through the great goodness of, of God. And it demonstrates the possibilities that exist when competition among people gives way to collaboration among people. Everybody's grabbing something, and we're pulling, you know, together. We're not pulling against each other. We're pulling together. And in that way, power, power happens. He talked about that in the passage. Not just words, but power. Power happens when people get it together. 
among themselves. And it points us to this high reality expressed in the Lord's Prayer. You remember how how Jesus taught us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's got a preferred will and purpose in this world. And it can be worked out through people as His Spirit is working through us and His truth is is working in us. I want to pray this morning. We're going to have a time of commitment. It may be that you want to respond somehow publicly. This church is a place where we hope more and more people will put roots down and it'll be your church family and church home. And maybe that's a commitment. There's a process here. Usually that means that uh, we hear your testimony and the elders uh, present you eventually after a, after a time like that for membership. But uh, it may be too. There's a baptistry behind this piece of plastic over here. <laughs> and, you know, we'd love to fill that thing up and, and uh, baptize authentic believers, people who have come to faith in Christ. And so maybe that's the next step for you, is to trust Jesus enough to publicly identify with him in baptism. And uh, we'll have just a few moments here. It may be that you want to approach me or one of our elders after the service and talk more, have us pray with you, we'd be happy to do that. But would you stand with me and uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of Scripture. Thank you for how it reveals who you are and what you want for us. And we pray now that you'll uh, work in the hearts of us to affect obedience. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.